Detroit Basketball! Welcome everybody to the second edition of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. This is Matt Watson, and this week I'm joined by Sean Corp and Ben Gulker. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the free agents that the Pistons signed uh, and, and a little bit about their lone draft pick. Uh, but before I get started, uh, I'd like to welcome Sean and Ben. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Yeah, doing great. Good to be with you guys. All right. Well, let's uh, let's just dive right into this. Let, let's go with the, the the first guy that the Pistons signed right out of the gate. Uh, a lot of people thought maybe they overpaid. Um, talking about Jody Meeks, and, and personally, I, you know, the more I, I think about this uh, signing, and the more I dig into a little bit about what Meeks brings to the table, I'm actually pretty happy with the deal. But uh, I know Ben, you have uh, you don't necessarily agree, at least for the price that they paid. So, uh, why don't you give us your thoughts a little bit about Jody Meeks? Yeah, sure. So. At the end of the day, I think Meeks is a fine player. Uh, I think he's going to fill a role and he brings skills that the Pistons are obviously lacking and have lacked for a while. I think there's really two ways to look about value when it comes to contracts. The first is compare a free agent contract to what everyone else in the market's doing, right? So uh, that's obviously a very intuitive way to look at it. The other way to look at it, though, um, is to, to look strictly at production for the dollar, and I tend to lead in that direction. Um, I think Meeks is a very good shooter, uh, and that's evident in what he did, especially last year for the Lakers. Um, But I don't think he brings a whole lot else to the table. And I think thanks to the great work that the NBA has done, and and I'm a statistical guy, um, a huge number of his buckets are off of assists. And to me, that says spot-up shooter and actually one of our one of our contributors wrote a really great piece about that. Um, but what I worry about is um, where are those looks going to come from in the system? So if, if Meeks is scoring 80% of his points off of assisted buckets, meaning someone else is passing the ball and he's shooting right away, you know, that there's a lot of volatility to me in a, in a player like that um, because he's depending so much on someone else passing him the ball. So I think... All things considered, yes, very good shooter. Not particularly good or outstanding anywhere else. Um, I do question, you know, is it worth spending half of what you had available to you on on that particular player, especially when you might look at a player like Anthony Morrow who was available for a whole lot less. So, you know, I I don't think it's a bad deal. I just think it was uh, a bit underwhelming. Uh, and I would have liked to have seen maybe a little more patience to see if you could get a similar skill for a little bit less. Yeah, I will say the the lack of patience, or you know, maybe another way of framing it was being really aggressive. Uh, that was something that that Dumars, you know, he he definitely did that with with uh, Ben Gordon and Villanueva signing those guys right out of the gate. And I was a little surprised to see Van Gundy take uh, that similar approach, where just storm out of the gate first day of free agency. I believe it was the first uh, major signing. Uh, or, or, or at least significant signing uh, of the of the entire free agency period. Um, but I know Sean, you you're act, you wrote a post uh, a, a day or two after he was signed, and and that actually is what started to help me think. Okay, maybe he's not overpaid. Maybe you know maybe this is actually uh, could be a good fit. It, your title of the post is actually Jody Meeks got paid, but he didn't get overpaid. Uh, so why don't you kind of explain a little bit uh, your thought process there? Well, there's sort of a two pronged approach to to the thinking in that article and primarily it's one because he was the first signing out of the gate i think people were still trying it it basically told the public what the market was and it was a lot more than people were expecting so and i think you saw that play out in other deals 
there's obviously been a lot of bargains, and that, that always happens every offseason. But I do think people are sort of coming to terms with a new salary cap, and these deals this year are reflecting that. And then I think there's a second part, which is much more about uh, Jody Meeks, the player. And to me, and, you know, I could be right or could be wrong, but uh, for, for many years he was a spot-up shooter. He's a three-point shooter uh, through and through. Last year, because he was on a horrible Lakers team with basically no scoring, they put a ton of responsibility in his hands, and that played out in him scoring in a lot of different ways that he'd never been asked to score before. And he kind of, uh, with the increased responsibility, he actually uh, stepped up his efficiency and uh, scored in a lot of different ways. So I guess the bottom line is if the Pistons are getting the player that played in Los Angeles, I think it comes out as him being completely fairly played, fairly paid. But uh, if he is just basically a catch-and-shoot guy on this team, then obviously it was an overpay, and uh, Van Gundy probably just felt like he had to jump the gun. And I am somebody that I think it's just because of so many years watching Dumars handle free agency. That was like the first sense of Dumars whiplash I got was, of course, you sign a guy uh, after like six hours of free agency and you're not patient. So I kind of just have to force myself to look beyond that and not instinctively think it's wrong. It still could be, but uh, maybe for different reasons. You know, one thing uh, that you just mentioned that I think, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time for us to get accustomed to is uh, the salary cap did did go up. It, it went up about $5 million from 58 to 63 and change. So a guy like Meeks, who's making 19 or 19 and a half over three years, uh, that number isn't, you know, it sounds weird to say, but it's not as big as it used to be. And next year when it goes up even more and the year after that when it goes up even more, this deal will get cheaper and cheaper as a percent of the overall cap. And when you're talking about a player who's 26, 27 years old, just entering his prime, I think there's still a lot of upside there, especially if he's able to keep on, you know, he, he made a nice jump last year. And if he's able to keep on making that jump, Detroit, they could have gotten themselves a bargain. Or at least that's what I'm telling myself here at, uh, you know, July in the middle of summer <laughs> when I'm always extremely optimistic. Yeah, sort of the one thing that excited me when I was looking through his stats is in L.A., he went from previous to that, he was uh, a very, very prevalent spot-up shooter where uh, his last two years in Philly, 16% of his attempts came kind of near the basket, and that jumped all the way to 29% last year because he sort of figured out how to use people's uh you know they're looking for him to shoot and he finally figured out how to use uh a defender collapsing on him to get to the basket and score an easy opportunity and that's definitely something this team could use uh to go with his obvious three-point shooting that he brings to the table which is not only is it a, a high percentage he's career something like 39 percent but he shoots a ton of attempts every year so it's less likely that it's a fluke. I think we pretty much know what we're going to get from him as far as perimeter shooting. All right. So, uh, Ben, I'm going to put you on the spot uh, just to start with somebody. Does Jody Meeks, is he going to start this year? Or is Contavious Caldwell-Pope going to take that role? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Um, it's going to come down to offense or defense, right? I think KCP showed last year that he has every single physical tool requisite to start a shooting guard in the NBA, especially if you're, you're prioritizing defense over offense because his defensive game is a lot more mature than his offensive game at this point. But I think if, if the idea is to maybe prioritize offense, then you give the, the nod to Meeks because he's a much more complete offense player at this point. Uh, he's a, he's a little more mature. And as I think Sean rightly, rightly points out, it looks like he really did add something to his game over the last year that is hopefully a sustainable uptick and will help him remain efficient. Um, I, I lean towards Meeks because I think, um, I, I think it would be odd to go, to go get a guy like Meeks to hear him say in the press conference, I want to start and then not start him. Um, I, I tend to lean towards Meeks a little bit. So 60, uh, 40 Meeks over KCP. That's my gut. Do you think that plays into who his backcourt mate is? or who the starting point guard is, essentially? I mean, if it's Brandon Jennings, does that mean it's more likely to be KCP? Or is it Brandon Jennings and Jody Meeks? I think that's another great question. And I would say if you if you had me pick the starting point guard, I would say Augustine. I think in addition to just being a better player, I think KCP is probably a lot better backcourt defender and matches up uh, in terms of complementary skills with Jennings a lot more. Uh, than he would with Augustine, but yeah, if I if I if I have to guess today, I'm going to say Augustine and Meeks are starting at the the one and the two come opening night. All right, well that's actually a really nice segue. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Augustine. You know, one thing I think, um, just as a lot of people were disappointed that the Pistons may have uh, overpaid a little bit for Meeks or be really aggressive with Meeks, I was really shocked at what they were able to get Augustine for. They got him for for six million for two years. Um, so one way of looking at this is, you know, they they, they signed a, a whole new backcourt, and if you average out the salaries, I think everyone will be pretty happy with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so what do you guys ex- what what do you think about Augustine and and you know talk a little bit about like what he brings to the table that Jennings didn't that that gets you excited for this year? I'm not going first. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I'll I'll start then because that that leaves me and only me. Uh, two things I am excited about uh, with with respect to Augustine. The first is, and you've seen Van Gundy and I think Bauer talk a little bit about this as well, um, is the ability to orchestrate a pick and roll. And they, they talked about breaking down, you know, extensive hours of game film and coming away convinced that Augustine might be one of the best in the NBA in the pick and roll, which, you know, I don't know if I'd quite go that far, but I haven't watched as much film as them either. Uh, I don't think that's something Jennings is particularly great at, and I don't think Pistons fans have had anybody who's been particularly great at that for the last several years. So that would be the first thing. And then the second thing is, and I, I'm i not really much of a, one of those intangibly kind of guys, but I think um, – he's a little grittier and maybe a little bit more of a competitor. And I think he wants to earn his spot in the NBA as a, a starting caliber player. And so I think pitting him against Jennings in the sense of competing for that starting position can only be a positive thing. Um, so those would be the two things that stick out. I, you know, defensively, I think it's going to be more about scheme than individual talent. You know, so I don't, I don't know quite what to think about him defensively yet, but I think the pick and roll, and I think the, the competitive nature that he's going to bring to the competition between him and Jennings is going to be 
two two significant wins for us next year. You know, kind of building off of that, you mentioned how, you know, kind of has a chip on his shoulder and he's so competitive. I mean, aside from his first four years in the league when he was when he was with Charlotte, I mean, he's been with three different teams the last two years. He had a very brief time in, in Toronto last year before really stepping up and, and shining in, in Chicago and basically earning his contract for this year. And then coming in and, and having to settle for a two-year contract and having to not have the the assurances of a starting job or anything like that. I kind of like the idea of a player like this. It, it's just like the storyline that it's really easy to, to root for, where a player who's kind of been you know, down on his luck, you know, came in as a, as a high draft pick and, and has been down on his luck, underwhelmed, doubted. And he really started his, his turnaround last year. And if you, if you want to be extremely optimistic, it, it almost reminds me a little bit of Chauncey Billups. How I Chauncey Billups, say that. Yeah. I mean, Chauncey Billups, <laughs> he bounced around the league. Uh, and then when he finally fell into a situation uh, in Minnesota and got a chance to really prove himself, that's when he he found his his next uh, his next stop. It became his permanent spot. So, I mean, we can only hope that that Augustine's stay here is as successful as, as Phillips. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to put that burden on him, but I can certainly draw at least some parallels right now uh, to their careers to date. But you're right. I think Augustine he does a lot of things well. He does the pick and roll very well. He's like all of the guys that we're going to talk about. He's an outstanding shooter. He shot 41 percent with Chicago. Uh, and over five attempts a game from beyond the arc. So that's just going to add uh, a whole other uh, element to uh, Detroit's offense that we just didn't have last year. And I think the the only – so Augustine by far is my favorite part of this offseason. I, I would really like to know more about why it was only a two-year deal. I think maybe he insisted on that because he's trying to play for his last big contract or something, but – I really would have liked to have seen a three- or four-year deal here because I think that is an absolutely fantastic bargain, uh, and he's a definitely an undervalued player. I think that's the only thing about it I don't like is that is that two years. You know, yeah, I don't have any special knowledge, but after what he did in Chicago, I got to imagine he thought he was going to get more than $3 million per, so I wouldn't be shocked if he basically said, I only want two years so I can solidify my value and then try again. Yeah, I mean that that makes all the sense in the world, and you gotta think that's really the only explanation that does. I mean, yeah, I'm sort of curious because I mean this is my own ignorance. I I've heard very bad things about Augustine's defense. I I don't know if they're true. I don't know if they're not. I just am not that smart. But I'd be curious to talk to a Bulls fan because uh, Ben, you mentioned scheme, and I agree. I think Stan Van Gundy has a lot in his shoulders about whether it's Augustine or it's Jennings, scheme has to account for the just inherent lack of native defensive skill. And obviously Thibodeau has uh, put in a top-notch defense year in and year out, no matter who's on the floor. So I'd, I'd sort of be curious from a Bulls fan's perspective, when Augustine kind of came on last year, what was the assessment of his defense within that obviously good scheme that they ran? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, defense as a whole, looking at what the Pistons did last year, I mean, it was really just a comedy of errors. I mean, if you go <laughs> back and laughing. look <laughs> about 60 games in, that was my sanity was either laugh or cry. So just <laughs> laughter. But I think, you know, one really easy example would be pick any random game film um, from a loss 
which there were plenty to choose from. And, and look at every single pick and roll on the defensive side of the ball and see if you can identify players who do the same thing every time. And what I would, what I would predict would happen is that you would see players who are not on the same page and you would see from one possession to the next, a very in, inconsistent approach to what has become like the fundamental play of NBA basketball. And so when I talk about scheme, that's what I mean. The Pistons didn't even have a scheme for the, the most consistently used play in basketball. So I think defensively the team can only get better just by nature of doing something consistently from possession to possession. The funny thing is you're being very critical, but you're almost downplaying it. It's almost impossible <laughs> to put into words how maddeningly inconsistent they were when they were on defense, especially in the pick and roll. It was just, it was absolutely mind boggling. But uh, if I could stick up or just sort of play devil's advocate, as far as Brandon Jennings is concerned, uh, let's say hypothetically he did add a lot of muscle to his frame, right? Uh, which I think pictures sort of indicate he has put on a lot of muscle. One of his biggest deficits was his ability to fight through screens that hypothetically a bit of muscle could could help with, assuming he was actually putting an effort, which is a very big assumption. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that he can do, and he even did it last year, is he finds the open guy. So I just checked uh, stats, NBA, and uh, he was a top 10 player as far as assist opportunities. So assuming his teammate converted the shot, he would have racked up an assist. He had 15 per game, and that was below guys like Kendall Marshall, Rubio, Wall, Lawson, Paul, and Rondo. That's it in the entire NBA. So, I mean, as bizarre as the offense was last year and as much as people couldn't do anything on that end of the floor, somehow he, Brandon Jennings, just has this innate ability to be a passer. I mean, he holds the ball too much and all those other negatives. But again, with scheme, if Van Gundy puts in the right kind of scheme with the right kind of shooters, I feel like there's just this small sliver of me that thinks that there's no one better that could execute it than Jennings. I mean, maybe I'm nuts because it's the offseason, but uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. No, I, I largely agree with you relative to Jennings on the offensive side of the ball. I think I do think he is good in transition. He's pretty good at hitting the, the transition three, which means you have to respect him. And he he's a willing passer, absolutely. I would say the thing that I don't like about Brandon Jennings on the offensive side of the ball, and this is a lot harder to quantify, is that in spite of getting a lot of assists, he tends to be a little bit ball dominant. And you don't see the ball moving and swinging around the perimeter like you might say out of like a San Antonio team, for example. So absolutely, it's going to come down to coaching and scheme and buy-in. And I think largely Van Gundy's biggest challenge is going to be buy-in because you have two relatively highly paid guys in Smith and Jennings with competition at both positions. And presumably he's going to ask him to do quite a few things differently. So scheme and buy-in absolutely right up there. And I do agree with you in the right scheme. Jennings is, I think a pretty useful point guard in spite of his shortcomings. Yeah. I tend to agree with both of you. Um, there are too much agreement. 
<laughs> there were there were times last year where uh, Jennings would show so much so much flash and so much potential, and, and he'd be really exciting to watch. And I think it just made the other times when he wasn't playing like that even more maddening, because he obviously has the talent, and he obviously has, like you said, he's a he's a very willing passer. You know, I I'm also curious to see if just the on court chemistry will change a little bit. You know, having a, a coach who's willing to rein in Smith. There seemed to be like a, a lot of disconnect uh, offensively last year for a variety of reasons, but you know, especially because you know you have guys like Smith just t- taking the, the the shots that they shouldn't be taking. But we spent an hour talking about that last week, so, so <laughs> I won't. Uh, I won't. Go I, I will say he's also the kind of coach who would hopefully keep Jennings on a short leash as far as defensive effort, and so I mean that. That I think is going to be a big factor. So I'm I'm sort of curious what both of you think going into this season. You know, I do think it's a legitimate competition, Jennings versus Augustine. Do you think that his first inclination is to give it to Jennings till he loses it, or do you think he brought in Augustine as a potential starter from day one? Do you think he would pull the trigger on something like that early, or kind of just wait how things play out? You know, personally, I think that. The job is Jennings to lose. And for all the success that Augustine had last year, most of it he was coming off the bench. So Augustine is a guy who's proven to have that ability to produce off the bench. Jennings is a guy who his entire career he's thought of himself and, and the rest of the league has thought of himself as a starter. And so I think there would be it would be a really uh dangerous situation early on to ask a guy to complete to ask both players to basically completely switch their roles. I think you risk losing them before you actually ever have them mentally, or at least in Jennings' case. But I mean, that, that's just that's just me. What do you what do you think, Ben? I think that's fair. I think, and this is fudging and, and hedging a little bit. It has a lot to do with whatever offense Van Gundy wants to install. I think, you know, I've watched not nearly as much Augustine as Jennings, but I think the point about Jennings I don't like is that he tends, in my opinion, to be a ball stopper. He tends to over-dribble, and, and that tends to delay the initiation of any sort of a five-man team offense. Based on the pickups and the additions, it looks to me like Van Gundy is building a roster that's going to depend a lot on ball movement. So I think it's going to come down to which of the two point guards facilitates that type of offense better, because both can shoot. Um, Jennings is probably a little bit better passer in terms of assist numbers, but I'm not sure he's the better facilitator overall, which is you know more than just assist. So I'm hedging a little bit, but I think it depends on system, and we don't know the answer to that yet. You know, just to uh, just to kind of play devil's advocate with what you're saying, uh, don't forget there was we had one of the readers, uh, Birdman84, had a fan post. DJ Augustin dribbles too much, probably. Uh, basically, it was riffing off of Zach Lowe from Grantland, looking at some of the Sport VU numbers. And apparently, uh, no other guard in the NBA dribbled more times per 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 touch than Augustine last year. Um, that's not to say that you know dribbling you it depends on the system uh, if it's productive or not. But statistically, no one dribbled in the NBA more than than Augustine did last year. And I, I will say, I just looked up on uh, the NBA stats the physical time of possession where they're holding the ball. Jennings was like uh, top seven or something, seven minutes per game. But Augustine was two spots below him at 6.8 minutes per game. So it, they might be having the same sort of style 
problems where they just hold on to the ball because they're always probing and not really giving it up. Right. Yeah, this might be a case of giving someone the benefit of the doubt just because we're not as familiar with them. But for everything else, you know, I, I do agree. I think Augustine, you know, he, he definitely has a little bit more polish to his game uh, from what I can tell. Uh, but we'll see if I still think that after watching it for half a season. Um, all right, well, you know what? Let's uh, let's talk about. Uh... Is, is it time for Aaron Gray yet, or are we holding that off? <laughs> that gets a podcast all gets a podcast all himself. Um, no, let's talk about. You know, we mentioned uh, Smith. Let's talk about the man that that Smith uh, is, that that could potentially be replacing Smith in the lineup. We don't know if he's somebody's be replacing Smith. Somebody is. Uh, will it be Crown Butler? Is he the going to be the starting small forward? Uh, let's just start with that question. If he is, I'm kind of worried about what that means for the success of the team, just instinctively. <laughs> just because, I mean, personally, I think Kyle Singler is a better player. I I don't know enough about Stan Van Gundy if he rewards that kind of veteran tenacity with a spot in the starting rotation. But uh, as it stands now, I'm sort of hoping Singler wins that battle. Yeah, I ditto. Ditto. I think... Um, the thing that, that makes me suspicious here is that going and getting Karan Butler for $4.5 million is a very strange thing to do unless you have a role in mind that you're anticipating he's going to play. Now, that's not necessarily starter's money by any stretch of the imagination, but to think about it from Butler's perspective as well, after the way he played in Oklahoma City, which was pretty darn good, all things considered, Detroit's an odd place for him to go unless there's a clear role that's sort of been agreed upon. So we know Van Gundy knows Butler. Um, we've, we've seen some of that um, just real recently here. But I agree. I think Singler is a is a better player if you're looking at the whole package. And hopefully, 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 Butler's a specialist who's playing some reserve minutes, and he's out there to stand in the corner and make three-pointers and not a whole lot else for not more than 20 minutes a game. That would That would be my hope as well. Right. I mean, I think maybe it's just divine punishment for me making fun of the Ben Gordon contract the Magic gave, because this is essentially the (laughs) exact same same carbon copy deal. So it's just mocking me. But uh, I would say that in a perfect world, the exact role that you defined hopefully is we need somebody to control the locker room and somebody that can contribute off the bench. That's your role. I will give you four and a half million dollars to be a you know a twenty minute per game spot up shooter, and you will have you know free reign to to do what needs to be done to get people in shape in the locker room. Because by all accounts, he's he's that kind of player. He plays a big role as far as you know. He's a big presence, and so there. If I was a betting man, I'd say Singler starts and he comes off the bench and has has a legitimate role off the bench as the first wing, and he he's going to get minutes. But I'm still thinking, especially because Singler has the sorts of skills that I think mesh well with the other starters as far as his ability to spot up and his ability to cut. So so I'm gonna I'm my cash is with Singler, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I th- you know, ultimately it may just come down to how the minutes are split and the whole idea of who's starting might end up being a moot point. You know, I, I think in terms of why a guy like Butler would come to Detroit, you know, I don't know if he really had many multi-year offers on the table. He's he's 33, I think he's going to be about 34 years old soon. 
He's been on three teams in the last two years. Uh, I, I think he basically was looking for, you know, how can I just stay in the NBA as long as possible? If someone's giving me two years, I'm going to take that over, you know, possibly uh, five million with with a more of a contending team. Which, to be perfectly honest, I don't even know if he could have got five million from a contender. I, I think he just basically took the money that was there. I, I don't think that that he was turning down other offers, and I don't think he he probably didn't have very many, um, if any at all, uh, multi-year offers on the table. Those smart veteran teams, they're not so dumb as to overlook the 800 minutes he played in Milwaukee where he was total garbage. Correct. And that I think that's an interesting thing to look at it, if it's a question of role. And, it, you know, my sense is that when he was playing in Milwaukee, in the first place, they were just a disaster of a team. So it's possible that some of that was a function of the situation. But then also, in Oklahoma City, literally all he has to do is stand in the corner and shoot threes. And if he's not pressing, he's not turning the ball over, he's not taking shots that he was able to make 10 years ago but maybe can't make now. So, you know, the best-case scenario is 43% three-point shooting on, you know, three or four attempts a game. If he does that it's, and maybe tries to get some rebounds every now and again, then I think I'll be okay. But I, I still think Singler's probably the more complete player at this point. To Ben's point, uh, he had a 12% turnover percentage in Milwaukee when he was, you know, the man. And when he was a fifth option on a veteran team in Oklahoma City, a 4% turnover margin, which was double or it was half of the lowest mark he'd ever put up in his career so yeah. he really is just spot up shooter at this point if as long as he's comfortable with that as long as that's the role being designed for this system that he's going to fit into great whatever sure maybe he'll you know keep josh smith in line while he's at it <laughs> such enthusiasm great whatever sure oh <laughs> sorry sorry it's been a long day <laughs> Uh, and uh, just to correct myself, he turned 34 in March, so he's going to be turning 35 at the end of this year. I think we're all in agreement. I, I think he signed for – for uh, you, you don't bring a guy like him in expecting him to do too much. Uh, whether he's the starter or whether he singler comes off the bench but plays the lion's share of the minutes, I think that Butler is going to come and he, he's going to bring some three-point shooting and, and anything else at this point is probably just bonus. Well, and I think, too, given his age, it'll be interesting to see if he's even in the lineup – every single game. I think it might be more likely that he's playing 60 to 65 games and that maybe opens up a shot for Jarebko to get some of those minutes when matchups are favorable and maybe even Luigi. That's right. Do you, do you guys think Datomi is a small forward or a power forward on a Van Gundy team? Because I'm kind of, I'm trying to carve out some minutes for him looking at the lineup and I'm, I'm struggling. I don't see where the minutes are at power forward. Yeah, I think I think I'm with Ben, and honestly, I don't I don't know if I've seen him play enough to feel comfortable saying he can play power forward. I mean, he's he's been this mystery player since the the day that the Pistons signed him uh, a year ago. At the risk of another segue opportunity here, Cartier Martin is primarily a small forward, if I am correct. So, what's the likelihood that veteran presence, uh, Karan Butler? struggles is he going to lose his minutes if he doesn't perform or is it going to be sort of he's going to have to struggle for almost a full season before they finally pull the plug on his role i from what i can tell about stan van gundy and from what 
we watched most recently in, in Orlando. I do not perceive him to be the type of coach who has unending patience with poorly performing players. I think he tends to play people based on merit. And I think guys earn their minutes or they ride the pine. So that would kind of be, I think there's enough, if there's enough shooting uh, and there are enough small forwards on the roster that whoever's slotted as a small forward had better be playing well, or I think there's a good chance they, they get yanked in favor of somebody else, especially if the role carved out is to be primarily swinging the ball around the perimeter and shooting threes when you're open. There are several guys who are going to be able to do that. I think basically the cream's going to rise to the top. Uh, you have a mix of, uh, of a guy who's still relatively early in his career in singular, uh, middle of his career in terms of age at least, Cartier Martin, who's going to be turning 30 in November, and Butler. So, I mean, it, it's basically like it, it, someone's going to rise to the top, obviously. I think Martin, just talking about his career, I feel like a, a broken record here, but he's yet another guy who's played on a handful of teams the last couple of years. Uh, I think there's the recurring trend that it's, it's easy to, to look at with all the guys that Van Gundy signed is their shooting ability, but he also brought in guys with a chip on their shoulder in terms of, you know, hey, I'm, I'm willing to, I'm really looking to settle down. And a guy like Martin, who's subsided on basically a bunch of 10-day contracts and one-year contracts, they gave him a reported two-year deal. I don't know if he's technically officially signed yet um but he he apparently has a two-year deal albeit for the veterans minimum so i i don't know that was uh i was kind of surprised to see them commit that on the first day of free agency he was signed the same day as Meeks, or they came to agreement the the same day as meeks uh and to give a guy like him a two-year deal you know you can't quibble too much it's veteran minimum so what are you gonna do but uh yeah almost curious curious yeah almost more than what they provide on the floor i'm sort of more interested in talking about sort of that approach going for minimum guys on the first day of free agency and a two-year deal i've never really seen it done that way i think it was a very deliberate decision uh what do you guys think about just the whole concept of getting your minimum guys at the very beginning instead of at the very end well i think they were in a unique situation where Relative to the cap and relative to the CBA, they knew that the biggest thing they wanted to do was retain Greg Monroe. Then they they knew they wanted to add one guy at the level they added Meeks. And then they knew they were piecemealing the rest. So I think they were pretty clear about this. You know, there were 10 or 12 guys on their radar. They had them tiered differently. So it's bizarre. I don't love it. But if, if that was the intentional strategy where we know we're going to retain Greg, we know we're going to add one guy at just over the mid-level, and then we're going to add two or three or four guys at the minimum. And they knew that ahead of time. It, it makes a little more sense. That said, <laughs> I would much rather have kept a roster spot open. And especially given the fact that if we do bring Monroe back at this point, we're at 16. I would have liked to have a roster spot and maybe send somebody out who's who's on the one of the cheap contracts for, you know, somebody who was just drafted in the second round or a future second rounder. I'd rather have that sort of flexibility than a guy in a two-year vet minimum deal who's maybe not ever going to crack the rotation on a consistent basis. I mean, Cartier Martin, you know, he's had some some fine seasons, so I don't want to discredit him. But you can get guys like Cartier Martin any day of the year off the D-League. I mean, that's where he spent uh, much of his career. I do think 
if you identify him, and, and he's been in the league, I don't want to sell him short, he's been in the league over the course of several years. He's played in over 200 games. If you do identify him and, and you know that he's a character guy and you know that you know this is the type of guy that you wouldn't mind being on your team, uh, and if you want him on your team for one year, it's such a small investment that you know you can either wait to the end and hope that he picks the Pistons out of all of the teams offering uh, minimum deals, or you can target him from the beginning, throw on another year, and all of a sudden you're the absolute first choice for him. So, I mean, I understand that strategy, but... You know, I, I do I do agree uh, just in terms of taking up a roster spot so early and, you, and you, you're already committed to them um, and you're kind of, you know, taking yourself out of the equation in terms of uh, the, the guys who are surprisingly left on the board late. What, what I think is kind of interesting is you're almost playing with house money maybe. Like, let's say Cartier Martin plays this year you're basically banking on him establishing himself as worth a minimum contract, right? And so even if you decide that you want to keep a roster spot open after this year and release him, if somebody picks him up, they have to pay him the minimum. You've basically wiped away your entire commitment to him, right? I mean, do you think that could have been part of the the math Van Gundy was using? Is that even if we get rid of him, someone else will pick him up, and that means we don't really have to pay them anymore. Uh, you know, that's that's actually a good point. Um, as long as they pick him up, you know, as long as he, he doesn't clear waivers and all that, I, you're right. Someone, somebody else would be paying his contract. And he's obviously, he's talented enough to play in the NBA, right? Like, we're not talking about a guy who's who doesn't belong in the NBA. We're just talking about, he's, he's basically the epitome of, like, that replacement level. You know, he, he, there's guys like him all over, all through the D-League, so... But yeah, I mean it. It's a very low. It, it's 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 not something to really get upset about. It's a very like low risk thing. But it's just a like a oh that's curious. Two years, huh? Okay, <laughs> right. I mean, and he did play eight hundred plus minutes on a, a an Atlanta team that was you know injury depleted, but also better than the Pistons. So I mean, I don't think they they're banking on him for a big role, but he's proven himself capable of playing in the NBA with a steady role the last couple years. So, I mean, yeah, and I don't know. I wouldn't mind seeing him on the floor pretty regularly. It, he shot 38% uh, from three-point land for, for his entire career. So, I mean, yeah, he obviously has some skills, and he has skills the Pistons were deficient in last year. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he does play. Um, Wait, what What skills weren't they deficient in, just so I'm clear? <laughs> Offensive rebounding, and they're trying to the extent of the list. So who's left? I think we've covered every uh, no, single no. edition. All right, instead of giving him his own podcast, let's just knock him out right now. We got Aaron Gray. Um, I bet we can wrap this up in uh, two minutes. Uh, yeah, Aaron Gray, uh, he's your typical big man at the end of the bench, seven-footer. Um, that's his skill set. He's seven foot tall. He has fouls to give. He's apparently a good locker room guy. Which that, I guess is that true? Is that I, I haven't even heard of it. I mean, is that, oh, I don't doubt it. I'm just curious. Yeah, I I was kind of looking for anything to get excited about. <laughs> so I was, you know, crawling through the internet. Obviously, the stats weren't helping me, so I had to go, you know, anecdotal evidence. And uh, from all accounts, I've I've heard that he's a good guy, so you know, there's that. 
He does he does rebound well, right? I mean, 11.1 does rebounds he? per 36. That's not bad. Right? I didn't think he was that good, actually. Yeah, and it, for 36 minutes, uh, 11, 11.1 for his career and uh, uh, 11.1 on the button last year uh, with Sacramento where he played most of his minutes. Yeah, I mean, he Unfortunately, he also shot 43%. Yeah, for a big man, yeah. But, you know, he shot over 50% for his career. I, yeah, he... He's another he's another vet minimum guy. Uh, somebody in the NBA has to sign him. It was the Pistons' turn this time, <laughs> so you know he's he's seven feet tall and presumably he can get up and down the court, like physically get up and down the court. So he'll he'll have a job in the NBA for you know probably another five years. If, I mean, if he never takes a shot, if he never <laughs> shoots the ball, I'll be okay. I I think he it's he has to be the twelfth man. If he's playing minutes, that means something has gone terribly wrong. That's about all I can say about it. Yeah. He did only have 61 field goal attempts all of last year. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, basically where I'm at is if he plays as many minutes as Harrelson did in his injury-depleted season last year, then fine. I mean, I guess you'll probably need a guy that can play a couple hundred minutes for whatever reasons. But yeah, if he turns into a rotation guy, we're in trouble because oh, yeah, in trouble. the big men are supposed to be the strength of the team, and both Andre Drummond and Greg Monroe could give you thirty plus minutes at center easy. So, all right, be a good locker room presence, Aaron Gray. I'm excited for it. <laughs> all right, l- l- let's take a few minutes. Um, let's talk about the Pistons' loan draft pick. Um, I'll tell you what I we're talking about Spencer Dinwiddie. I didn't know. I don't watch college hoops much unless 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 we're talking about University of Michigan or a little bit of Big Ten. Uh, I don't watch college hoops. I had heard the name Dinwiddie. I didn't really know anything about him. I had heard that he was on uh, a lot of our readers uh, with their wish lists, and, and uh, we had written a little bit about him. But I, I he was a complete unknown quantity to me on draft night. The more I looked at his college numbers, the more I looked at his you know, read scouting reports about him and, and, and even read, you know, just character things about him, the more excited I got. And I'm and I'm probably setting myself up for frustration by by building him up so much, but I think that the Pistons got an absolute steal with this guy. Obviously he's coming off an ACL injury. Um and the the reason why he's a little bit of a mystery right now, he, he didn't play in summer league and the Pistons uh have been extremely coy in terms of when he's actually going to play at all. Um, I think not, that's almost an understatement. Yeah, I mean they they're not they're not letting him give any sort of timeline for his return. But he has said, you know, I he he said I'm not limited. Uh, there's no movement restrictions for me on the court. You know, there's videos of him, you know, dunking, training. Uh, so I, I think he's close to returning. But whether or not he's you know sitting out the first half of the year, or I know there's rumors of him maybe sitting out the whole year. I don't know. But, but you know, he, he's a guy that I'm excited about. Um, you know, Sean, why don't you talk a little bit about what, what are you most excited? Uh, well, I'm most excited because he looks like Axel Foley, <laughs> my childhood hero. And to have him in the Detroit is just too much for my brain to handle. It's too great. But obviously the biggest skill he brings is some prolific ability to get to the line. I, I'm sort of curious what the translation is from college to the pros as far as 
a guy that can get to the line so often. I'm not sure it translates well, but let's hope so because he was, you know, lights out from the line and he got there all the time. And I do think he is a point guard. There was some question about whether he's a point guard or a shooting guard. I think obviously the Pistons drafted him to be a point guard and they see him that way. And uh, if you have a 6'6 point guard that can get to the line, shoot three-pointers, and defend a little bit, I mean, that that is uh, quite a few boxes that not a lot of people check. And so uh, I'm real excited for seeing what he can do on the team. Yeah, just to uh, for, for our listeners who, who don't know his numbers off the top of their head, you're right, you nailed it. He, he got to the line, uh, he averaged 7 7.0 free throw attempts last year, 7.3 the year before. But this is also a guy who averaged 3.7 three-point attempts, right? So he shot 41% from three, 85.7% from the free throw line, and he's getting a ton of attempts in both spots. So he seems to be a guy who's, if he's not shooting three-pointers, he's getting fouled. Like that's, I mean, in terms of efficiency, that's that, that's the holy grail. Uh, it's like catnip. Yeah, exactly. Ben, what do you think? Legitimately excited. Um this is the cliche that kind of made its way through our comments over at Detroit Bad Boys, but uh, he was a first-round talent that slipped because of injury. I think he was more than a first-round talent. I think if you look at the work that, uh, for example, Arturo Valetti has done over at Box Score Geats, look at how highly Dinwiddie projected based on Arturo's model. And Arturo's model doesn't get it right all the time, but it's fairly reliable. Uh, and he's projecting Dinwiddie just based on numbers as having good enough numbers to start if he's healthy when he's a rookie. That's no small feat. I think uh, that's obviously driven by the fact that he shoots the three well, and he shoots it often, and then he gets to the three throw line and he shoots well. The fact that he shoots 85% from the line suggests to me his shooting is is not some sort of fluky thing that only happened in college. It's going to translate. So assuming he makes a full recovery, I really got to think – the hope for him is starting point guard one year from now. I, I, I'm legitimately excited to see him play. I didn't watch him until after the Pistons drafted him, I think, like a lot of people. But when I did, I saw a whole lot of things to be excited about. He, he makes me really excited about the Pistons' future. Looking at him, you know, stretching the defense and in the pick and roll with Andre Drummond, that could be a pretty nasty little combination uh, when everything's working well. So pretty excited for that. And and his social media game is down cold. I, he's oh, hilarious man. to follow on Twitter. Uh, it's hilarious to see the exchanges between between he and Drummond. So I mean, obviously that doesn't uh, matter in terms of on court production. But for for a locker room that you know, I, he didn't really get any solid reports. But it seemed like maybe there it was fractured a little bit. There's obviously some tension that just comes with any team that loses. Uh, but it's just it's just fun to see you know a young kid come in there and, and just show that camaraderie already with a with a guy like Drummond and. God, I mean, I'm really excited to see him on the court. I, I'm trying not to get my hopes up in, in terms of when that is, because because there's because of all the talent that the Pistons have right now, and you know, I I personally don't think that Will Bynum's going to be on the roster by the time the the season starts. But as of right now, because because of all the point guards, you know, uh, and him coming off injury, I could see them being really slow bringing him along. But man, like once he does get get up to to full strength and, and full minutes, I'm really curious to see what he can do. Well, thinking about point guard depth, I think. I think sort of, and how coy they've been as far as Dinwiddie's injury and the recovery. I think let's all assume that Greg Monroe comes back and he's a piston for several years. 
they have to cut somebody. So if they cut Will Bynum right then, that tells me that uh, they think Dinwiddie's healthy. If they cut somebody else and give him a chance to latch on somewhere, like a, a Tony Mitchell, that tells me they think that Dinwiddie's injury is significantly going to go into the season and they're prepared to sort of have a team without him this year because they need that Will Bynum sort of insurance so that he can see minutes. Because, I mean, as far as straight point guards on the roster, you have four right now, but only three if Dinwiddie's actually injured. So, And you need three, I would say, because there's not really any shooting guards that could cover as a point guard. No, that's true. That's a good point. Um, and in fact, you know, perhaps that's why they're they're waiting so long to make a decision on on who they end up cutting and and postponing because it's, it's quite obvious to me, at least, that they're they're done with their free agency, right? But they still haven't officially signed everybody. Um, so maybe that's part of the reason why they're waiting. I think it might have something to do with exceptions they plan on using once they sign Monroe. Because I I think you only have those exceptions once you're over the cap. Once you're over the cap, that's they wanted to Yeah, they probably want to fold Martin and Gray into those exceptions. But I could be totally off base because I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I get so nervous whenever I write anything <laughs> complicated about salaries at Detroit Bad Boys because collectively uh, the, the comments are always ten times more intelligent than anything I have to say. <laughs> I know, it's, it's so, so funny. How many Minimum guys they can basically it. add whenever they want. So this is the provision in the CBA that gives vets the opportunity to work regardless of the rest of the cap. So if if Gray and Martin are on truly vet minimum deals, they could be added at any point. So it won't factor in. So I think it's only going to that only gets tricky if they agree to more than the minimum for whatever reason that is. Now, does it does it change at all if it's a multi year deal? And I'm just showing my complete ignorance. That's a good question. I don't know the answer. Okay. And neither do I. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, uh, Will Bynum, he's set to make $2.9 this year. Um, I think he, I think with a guy like him, I don't think the Pistons would have a hard time uh, spinning him for a future second-round pick, throwing a little bit of cash. You know, I don't think they'll have to outright eat that money. I think they'll be able to, to move him uh, and at least get him off the books, even if they end up having to pay it in terms of uh, – uh, sending cash along in a trade. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder about that. I mean, this, the NBA is so focused on perimeter players that can shoot the three. That's definitely not Bynum's game. So, I mean, I think he does have a use. Obviously, if he was let go outright, he would catch on somewhere. But I, I just I don't know how the NBA at large views a player like Bynum right now. No, that's fair. Maybe he can... Could always go back overseas. You know, he had his rookie year in 05-06 and spent a couple years in Israel. Um, yeah, I think the thing about Will is he wants to play. So I think I th- I don't think it's outside their own possibility that, that they might even buy him out for less than it would cost to cut him if he thinks he can catch on and fight for a backup job somewhere. So I don't I wouldn't rule that out either. Yeah, that's possible. I, I just get uh for his sake, uh I don't know if nervous is the right word, but you know, the longer you go into the off season, you know, the fewer of those types of jobs are available. Um, yeah. So, you know, hopefully for his sake, the Pistons make a decision. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I do think, uh, I, I do think that his, his time in Detroit is done and, you know, on completely separating 
what he does on the court and the skills that he, he, he does or doesn't have. I'm actually a little bummed. Uh, back when I actually covered the Pistons, uh, he was one of the nicest guys in the locker room, um, one of the, the coolest guys to talk to uh, the year that the Pistons got Iverson. And I just remember talking to Will, uh, and maybe I can dig up this interview, but he just talked about like how cool it was uh, to be able to measure himself against Iverson because that's a player that he always grew up uh, admiring and idolizing. And then next thing you know, you're teammates with them. And next thing you know, uh, you're taking him in practice, and all of a sudden you start thinking about your your own abilities uh, in a different way when you're beating your heroes. And and you know I'm sure that every guy in the league has a story if you if you take the the time to get to know him. But there's only a small handful of players like that that I had uh, the chance to build a rapport with, and, and Bynum was one of them. And so on a personal level, uh, I'll always kind of be rooting for him. But, right, uh, and I mean he has he has skills. He just needs to be in the right situation and. When he's in the wrong situation, which is, I think, where he's been in the Detroit the last couple of years, it just it doesn't go well. I mean, he you have to put him in a place where he can play to his strengths and probably put him on a court with players that are better than him, so he can give them opportunities to score. Right. But uh, that's that's not here. So as much as you know, I've enjoyed and been f- frustrated by Will Bynum's time in Detroit. He's carved a nice career out for himself. He's made over 14 million bucks in the NBA. Yeah, not over, bad. Yeah, I mean, after not really getting a chance and uh, having to, you know, ply your trade overseas and hope you catch on again, you know, he got that shot from Dumars in 08, and he parlayed it into $14 million from Detroit, and I'm sure he's got, you know, a handful of years left in him at the NBA level. So yeah, he and Rodney Stuckey have a lot to be grateful for with respect to Joe Dumars. Question <laughs> about that. It although to defend Joe Dumars, I think if the Pistons hadn't reached a deal with him a couple years ago, I think he probably would have made eight million dollars on the open market from somebody because you know he was still that untapped potential. Somewhat, he was young enough to get someone to give him a deal. Yeah, and in fact, you could argue if Dumars had hired a better coach, maybe Stucky's career wouldn't have completely stagnated and, and regressed the way that it did. So, you know, Stucky he he made his own bet. I think I'm not, you know, no, I'm not, yeah, I mean, I'm not anti Stucky, but I, you know, after just watching him for as long as I have, uh, he he kind of is what he is, and I think it's a little bit of a wake up call for him to realize, like, oh shit, I get the that minimum for one year. Was was that the first Detroit Bad Boys? Swear on the official <laughs> podcast. I'm gonna have to mark this as explicit now, aren't I? <laughs> oh boy, we're in hot water. Those iTunes it. reviews are gonna be horrible. <laughs> First step: getting on iTunes. All we'll <laughs> oh, right, there's a whole process. Um, all right, well, all right. Let's uh, since we're at a little bit of a stopping point. Um, we had talked about this a little bit before, uh, but one element that we want to add to this podcast. Uh, I mentioned it earlier that the. The comment section collectively is about 10 times smarter than anything that I have to say. Um, and, and one of the things that, that we're able to do at Detroit Bad Boys is uh, uh, our readers can, can contribute fan posts, um, basically uh, writing their own articles on the sidebar and then uh, periodically uh, editors such as the three of us on the podcast and, and, and some other folks, we can go in there and, and bump it up to the front page. Um, so anyways, uh, one, one that caught my eye, I was kind of... Uh, Happy to wake up to this the other day, just because it's. Uh, I always have a soft spot uh, talking about any of the the original bad boys. Um, uh, the reader goes by the name Ghost of Dumars. 
wrote a fan post entitled Dennis Robin may deserve another rebounding record. And he basically broke down statistically um, using modern advanced statistics that nobody was even thinking about uh, back in the, in the nineties, uh, just kind of looking at Robin's career through, through an analytical lens and, and just uh, gives you a greater appreciation for what exactly he was able to do um, in terms of uh, defensive rebound percentage and, and, and tweaking the formula um, or, or, I don't know if tweaking is the right word, but but accounting for actual games played and and kind of pointing out the flaws for some of the traditional ways of looking at it. And, um, you know, I don't want to be, to, to completely spoil it, uh, but 94-95 season, Robin had uh, led the NBA with a 38.58% defensive rebounding percentage, which is the tops in NBA history in terms of stats that we have available. A little bit of a disclaimer there. I'm sure Bill Russell will take offense. <laughs> We're not talking about Bill Russell. <laughs> yeah, in the in the mod, how come they didn't count rebounds and, and blocks back in the day? I know that's like I don't want to take Bill Simmons' stick, but like it wasn't that hard to do, you know. Like if they're able to count points and assists, how come you just can't count rebounds and 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 uh, blocks? I don't have an answer for that one. <laughs> but yeah, no, I thought it, I thought it was an excellent post. It was uh, uh, it's a perfect post for for July. You know, there's no news. Yes, it's, it's and nice it's. To, it's sort of one of those posts I always sort of try and write in my head and have it get super involved and you, you just can't find the time to actually spit it out on the page. So anytime someone can actually do the painful work of sorting through the stats, quantifying them, putting them up in nice little chart form. Personally, those are always my favorite kind of things to write and to read. I don't probably write them as much as I should, but sometimes I can. But yeah, anytime, especially taking an old player and sort of recontextualizing them, putting them in a, in a new frame of reference. Obviously he's always been a great rebounder, but to really quantify how prolific he was, it, it's crazy to read. Yeah. And I, in my opinion, Dennis Rodman is one of the most underappreciated players in the last 25 years of the NBA. And so I am for any post that confirms my opinion. So <laughs> Ghost of Dumars. And also I'll say Ghost of Dumars, very solid commenter. I always enjoy reading his comments. They're they're often very blue. <laughs> I would say though that uh if someone wants to take the challenge out there, I think there's something to be said about putting Isaiah Thomas in a modern context. This would be a very challenging thing to explore. I think in some ways He's sort of maybe overrated by today's standards, but also in of a such different time that to really explore sort of his value on the court in his time and what he did and what he didn't do. I'm putting the challenge out there because I'm certainly not smart enough to write it. Yeah, that's actually a post. That's a post that I don't know if I want just because it would depress me so much. I, yeah, I think Kevin's got dibs on that post. I think <laughs> I'll help him do the research. <laughs> I like I, you know, you with with all of these guys that that you watched growing up. You know, you put them on such a pedestal that when you actually take a moment and you look at their stats and you, and you look at their careers and you're like, man, like he wasn't as good as I thought he was. But I mean, the thing is, it was a completely different NBA. Right. It was a little bit I more mean, free flowing. Uh, if he was told never to, yeah, if he was told never to shoot three pointers, then you know. Do we do we ding him for not shooting three pointers? Well, no, but hold up, that's that's one of the reasons why I say it was a different 
Um, yeah, I, I, exactly. It's sort of how do you quantify that? It His, was. It's not necessarily lack of skill. It's lack of that being part of the game. Nobody could shoot three pointers back then. Like nobody. He. Oh, let me let me bring up the stat real quick. Just so everyone knows what we're talking about, his career numbers, he was a 29% shooter, right? So we're talking someone much worse than Will Bynum. But he actually came, God, he was like top five in the NBA, and he was shooting around 30%. Like I said, very interesting (laughs) post that I'm not smart enough to write. Somebody please write it. I'll even make the charts for you if you just give me all the data. Isaiah Thomas is the most overrated Piston player of all time. Oh, no, don't say that. Sorry. Wait, more overrated than Aaron Gray? (laughs) I'm telling you, the bandwagon's forming right behind me. Aaron Gray, 2014. Isaiah Thomas shot 28.8% from beyond the arc in 1983, and he finished second in the NBA. That's crazy. That's hilarious, just how different it is. I'm 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 sure that happens a lot in baseball because people are so in tune to those stats across eras, but that's definitely something I did not know about basketball. Yeah, it wasn't until they moved in the three-point line. Uh, remember when they brought it in really close all the way around? That's when the spike happened. That's when guys like, you know, even Larry Bird completely changed his game to take advantage of it. And then when they decided, okay, this is a little nuts. We have too many three-pointers. And they they bumped it back out. Everyone's mindset had already shifted, and the three pointer stayed um, p- part of everyone's offense. But no, like three point attempts uh, back in the day, nobody took them. Nobody could make them. It was like a novelty shot. Yeah, that that was not one of Isaiah's strengths. So so now we could say the true test of someone making it through all of episode two of the podcast is: Do they acknowledge that Ben said? Isaiah Thomas is the most overrated piston of all time. Because I think that would probably stick out. (laughs) Save the good stuff for the end. (laughs) Agreed. All right. Well, that's a good uh, good way to end it. So, well, thanks, guys. This was fun. I had a good time. Episode two in the books. Episode three will will be even better. (laughs) All right, guys. Till next time. I don't even know how to start this. Just got to go for it. We'll figure out as more we do it. it. All right. You can always record an intro later. Yeah, that's That's true. true. Maybe I'll just use this as the intro. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the second edition of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Uh, This week, it's... uh, Okay, let me do that again.